So today's message, we're continuing in our revival series, and we're going to talk about increasing God's power in your life. We're going to be going through a lot of scripture today, 2 Chronicles chapters 14 through 16. Don't worry, we won't be reading all of that, but we'll be taking some snippets from in there. And one of the questions that when I talk to other pastors or I talk to um, other church leaders is... And the, the, the questions that they are asking right now is, is how do we lead people in the church through all these crises that are coming our way in the last two years or so? It just seems like we go from crisis to problem to crisis to, to something blowing up, so to speak. It just seems we keep going from, from bad to bad to bad to bad to bad to bad. So how do we encourage people? How do we lead people through this? when there's all these national crises going on. Well, thankfully, the Bible gives us a lot of instruction on that. It's the same exact question that the prophet Ezra had in leading people from who had been banished and taken into captivity in Babylon. Now he's leading them all the way back over to Israel to restart their lives. Exactly the same question that he's asking himself. And that's why he wrote that book of Chronicles. So, part of this is also not just looking at it globally, but it's looking at it personally. Many of us, we, we talk about the global stuff that's going on in our lives, but quite often, honestly, most of us probably keep our personal stuff to ourselves. So when we go through these personal crises, we also have questions that need to be answered. Now, for a little context of what we're going to be reading this morning, the book of Chronicles covers a 400-year period of time called, in the Bible, if you're a Bible nerd like me, it's called the Kingdom Period. It covers from about 1000 B.C. to 600 B.C. It's 400 years. And during that time, Israel was always ruled by a king. The first king of Israel was named Saul. He was picked because he was the biggest, the baddest, the, the strongest warrior um, the one that you would look at and say, yeah, that's the guy that has to be in charge. You know, in human eyes, we would say, yeah, yeah, he sounds like he'd be a, a great king. Unfortunately, Saul didn't do all that well. So Ezra doesn't spend a lot of time on him. David comes next. We talked a lot about David a few weeks ago. David is a very human person. David is um, probably, in the Bible, the person who had the closest look at his life, uh, aside from anybody else in the Bible, even including Jesus, because we really didn't see Jesus grow up, but we saw David grow up from a young teen all the way to his death, and you saw all the stuff that he did. So I'm very thankful that God put all that in the Bible, because it gives me hope that I can make it eventually. So we saw two weeks ago that God asked David to build him an altar. So David built that altar, but first... He just didn't go and, and squat on somebody's land. He went and he bought the land. He was king. He could have gone and confiscated somebody's um, property if he wanted to. He could have said, yeah, you have a field full of bulls. They're mine now because I'm king. He could have done that, but no. He paid full price for everything because he said, I will not offer to the Lord my God a sacrifice that costs me nothing. Next in the line of king was Solomon. And last week we learned how his gift of wisdom endowed and blessed an entire nation. Now in 2 Chronicles 
10 through 13, chapters 10 through 13, it tells the story of Solomon's sons, those who came after him and assumed the kingship. One of his sons was named Rehoboam. Rehoboam, not a very wise king. First thing the people do, you know, Solomon was great, probably one of the greatest kings next to David in Israel's history. He was, the entire land was blessed. Everybody had a job. They were secure. They didn't have any wars. I mean, they, they really, really were blessed. Unfortunately, to pay for all that, Solomon heavily taxed the people. So the people come to Rehoboam, his son, when he comes in and says, look, you know, we were happy under your dad, but can, can we get rid of this like extremely high tax rate? Because we want to start building our own lives, but we can't do that if we're giving all this money to the kingdom. And so Rehoboam, instead of consulting with his advisors, decides, eh, let me go ask my buddies on the block here, you know, what they think. Well, they told him that he should double it. He, should, they, he, he told him that, you think my father was bad, I'm going to be even worse. It caused a split in the kingdom. The northern tribes go north, and the northern part of Israel, they split, form their own country. Judah and one or two of the other tr smaller tribes stay in the south. And from that time on, Israel was a divided kingdom. And through its history, 19 kings ruled that northern kingdom of Israel. And not a single one of them truly followed the Lord. If you looked at and, and just go through what the Bible has to say about them and just put a G or a B in front of them for good and bad, you won't find a single G above any of Israel's kings. They were all bad. Twenty kings ruled in the kingdom of Judah, and many of them actually tried to follow the Lord. They would go for, like, bad, bad, then there'd be a good, then it'd be like, bad, 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 then there'd be a good. So they had some good kings who tried to follow the Lord. And Ezra, when he's writing Chronicles, he's trying to find positive examples to teach uplifting lessons to everyone and, and show them the way that it could be. So Chronicles majors mostly in the kingdoms and kings of the south. So after David, Solomon, and Rehoboam, there's two kings. The first one is Abijah. Abijah reigned for three years, and he didn't do well. He would have been one of the bad kings. So we'll go to the second king, whose name starts with an A, and his name was Asa. And Asa was not perfect, but he was one of the better kings. And Ezra is going to show us through the life of Asa three lessons on the power of faithfulness this morning that's going to bless us and, and help us during this time that we're living in right now. And Asa is going to show us that when we are faithful to God, God is always going to be unfailing to us. Asa is going to teach us that the faithful may have setbacks. We may stumble, we may fall, we may just boom right onto the sidewalk like we're, we're slipping on the ice outside. may fall flat on our faith sometimes, but God will always be there to pick us back up and get us back on the path that he has for us because he is faithful to those who remain faithful to him. Asa's story spans three chapters of 2 Chronicles, chapter 14, 15, and 16. Chapter 14 is the lessons from a route. Now, when we say route, we're not talking about a road. We're not talking about saying like route four and a road. We're talking about a route like if the Packers win today by 90 to zero, they routed that other team. 
Okay, that's, that's what we mean by route there. The second chapter is a lesson from a revival. We're going to talk a little bit about revival today and why it's so important. And the third cha- chapter is a lesson from a rebuke. So we're going to do some learning today. We're going to do some reading. So we're going to start in 2 Chronicles chapter 14. Let's open in prayer. Father God, we ask, Lord, that you just take this lesson, use it, keep our minds from wandering, keep our minds from wondering what's after church. Help us to focus on the power of your word and the lessons it wants to teach us because it is essential not only for our spiritual growth right now, but the times are getting so dark, so oppressive, so rapidly heading toward your return. It's necessary now for our survival. So I ask, Father, that you help us to be open to your word this morning and help it to bless us, nurture us, and point us in the right direction during this time. Lord, I ask this in your name. Amen. So, around 900 B.C., before Christ, the king of Cush, which is modern-day Ethiopia. Remember, Israel is up here. Ethiopia is down here in Egypt, kind of down in here. They were a major kingdom at that time. They were powerful enough to actually go across Africa and conquer the kingdom of Egypt. That's how, how strong that kingdom suddenly rose up and began conquering people. Well, the country north of Egypt during that time was Israel. So they were, they were next on the line to be conquered. And this happened to happen very early in Asa's reign. In 2 Chronicles chapter 14, verse 8, starts telling us a story. It says, Asa had an army of 300,000 from Judah bearing large shields and spears, 280,000 from Benjamin bearing regular shields and drawing the bowls. All these were valiant warriors. Then Zerah the Cushite came against them with an army of one million men and 300 chariots. So do the math. Israel's outnumbered at least two to one. So Asa does the only thing he can do, and the best thing he can do, is that he turns to God in prayer. Verse 11, Then Asa cried out to the Lord his God, Lord, there is no one beside you to help the mighty and those without strength. Help us, Lord our God, for we depend on you, and in your name we have come against this mighty large army. Lord, you are our God. Do not let a mere mortal hinder you. Verse 12, so the Lord routed the Cushites before Asa and before Judah, and the Cushites fled. Then Asa and the people who were with them pursued them as far as Gerar. The Cushites fell until they had no survivors, for they were crushed before the Lord and his army. So the people of Judah carried off a large supply of loot. Now, what does this mean for us today? Now, imagine you're Asa. You're probably in your mid-20s, maybe 30 years old. You get wind of the largest army that existed at his time, one million men, is about to, is about to come against you and conquer you. You're thinking that everyone in the kingdom, I mean, just think for a moment, you know, it's, you know what kind of what it's like to be like over a family and being responsible for the people under you. Some people have been leaders in a workplace or maybe in the military. You were a non-commissioned officer or an officer. 
So you know what it's like to have people under you and you're responsible for everything. Now imagine being a king. You are directly responsible for thousands and thousands and thousands of people under you. And now you have an army coming to kill them, coming to loot them, coming to carry them away into captivity. And you're very young at this time. So what do you do? You do what every person of faith should do, and that is pray. You call on the Lord. Lord, Asa says, there is no one besides you to help us. Help us, Lord, because we depend on you. And what does God do? God answers him. He does what Asa asked, and he did even more than Asa asked. He not only protected the kingdom and everyone he loved, he gave his enemy over to him so that his entire army was destroyed and could never, ever threaten Israel again. I wonder if the Apostle Paul was thinking of this very passage when he wrote that God was able to do exceedingly abundantly above all else that we can possibly ask or imagine. Now remember, Asa's teaching this to a people who are insecure and unsure. People who are tra walking across the desert right now, coming back into their homeland. They've been away from 70 years. Not a single person there has ever even seen Israel before. They've all died over, the original people have all died in Babylon. Now the next generation is coming back. And when they get back, they find out that people have moved into that place that they had lived in. And they're not happy that the Israelites are back. So they're facing a very similar situation to what Asa felt. So Ezra, again, is writing to a people who feel very insecure, feel very unsure, feel... I don't know what the future holds, but it just doesn't look good. Like many of us right now. Many of us in this, in this chaotic thing that we're calling America and the world right now just feel very insecure and unsure about what's going to happen next. After all, just the, the fact that we're all wearing masks right now the world just keeps throwing things at us. Do we, we wonder, do we dare go to a restaurant? Do we even go walk into a quick trip to get, get a candy bar? Might I get sick? Is it safe to send our kids to, to school? Some people, you know, and I'm not saying good or bad, but some people are worried about the new president. Is he going to take away our rights? Is he going to ruin our jobs? Is he going to do this? Is he going to do that? And other people are thinking, well, I'm glad the other guy was out of there. You know, there's, there's a whole bunch of people that are on one side or the other, and, and they won't meet in the middle. They're just going to yell at each other. But Ezra wants, gave this to us in the Bible to teach us a lesson about faith and our God's faithfulness to us. And that's why it's called the lesson of the route. Asa prays, and the Bible says that the Lord routed the Cushites before Asa and before Judah, and the Cushites fled. And that's what the lesson is. Call on the Lord, and he will fight for you. He will rout your enemies before you. You know, when you go to work, you get what you do, right? You get paid, most of us are paid by the hour. 
Your paycheck's completely dependent on your efforts. If you don't work, you don't get paid. But when you pray, you don't get what you can do. You get what God can do. That's a pretty good deal. We put this small little effort in, and then we have all the power of the universe ready to come to our help. It's like paying a penny to get $12 trillion. Right? I mean, our, our small act of prayer has all the power of God to come and to help us. He can do everything. We see here he can route and conquer and wipe out a million-man army. God can supply all of our needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. That's a lot of riches. God owns every grain of sand on the seashore of every planet in existence right now. He, can, he, he has plenty to, 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 to draw from. He can supply financial needs, physical needs. He can give you a job and, and health in the midst of this pandemic. If you need a friend, he can supply one. He can encourage you. He can keep you from falling. He can do anything that you are going to need from him right now to maintain your relationship with him. There's a Christian pro tip. I, I've been using this a lot to say it's a, a pro tip or it's something that once you realize it and live it, it's going to help you grow and become strong in the Lord. You know, sometimes God will let you feel outnumbered. Sometimes God will even let you feel alone so that you'll turn to him. So that you'll turn back to the one source that will never forsake you. In 2 Chronicles 7.14, we quote this a lot. Ezra reminded us that if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek their face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will heal their land. If we are faithful to pray, God is faithful to fight for us. So I ask you for tomorrow morning, and every morning really, what's the first thing we should do? Pray. Where's the first place we should get our news? The Bible. Put God first. And then everything else falls into place. The second lesson comes in chapter 15. The route is over. Asa and his men are returning to their homes and families. On their way home, the Lord sends them a prophet named Azariah to encourage him. And in chapter 15, verse 1, it says that the Spirit of the Lord came on Azariah, son of Odin. He came to meet Asa and said to him, Asa and all of Judah and Benjamin, hear me. The Lord is with you when you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you abandon him, he will abandon you. For many years, Israel has been without the true God, without a teaching priest and without instruction. But they turn, or but when they turn to the Lord God of Israel in their distress and sought him, he was found by them. In those times, there was no peace for those who went about their daily activities because the residents of the land had many conflicts. Nation was crushed by nation and city by city, for God troubled them with every possible distress. But as for you, be strong. Don't give up, for your work has a reward. And I think somebody needs to hear that this morning. 
All your work for the Lord has a reward waiting for you. It may be coming soon in this life, but it definitely is waiting for you in the next. Somebody need to hear that this morning. Verse 8, when Asa heard these words and the prophecy of Azera, son of Oded, the prophet, he took courage and removed the abhorrent idols from all the land of Judah and Benjamin, from the cities he had captured in the hill country of Ephraim. He renovated the altar of the Lord that was in front of the portico of the Lord's temple. Then he gathered all of Judah and Benjamin, as well as those from the tribe of Ephraim, Manasseh, and Simeon, who were residing among them. For they had defected to him from Israel in great numbers when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. Now on the way home from a great victory, God asked Asa to make this victory even bigger. You see, during the reigns of his father and his grandfather, people had begun worshiping the other, other gods of the land. The gods of the Canaanites, the gods of, which were primarily Baal and Asherah. Baal was a, a fertility god, was a bull. Asherah was a, um, a god that demanded child sacrifice and, and sexual lasciviousness. Just, just a bad, bad, um, bad scene there that was going on in Israel when you worship these two gods. And Esau remembers that first commandment. He said, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. So Asa decides to actually start living according to the word of God. And he hires demolition crews, sends them throughout Judah, and says, if you see an altar to Baal or you see an altar to Asherah, rip it down. Tear it down. We are returning to the Lord our God. Not only that, but he commissions the Levites, those that one tribe of Israel that was selected by Moses and by God to lead the entire nation in worship of God, he recommissions them to refurbish that temple and get it ready. The people are so inspired by Asa's leadership that they all flock to Jerusalem for the celebration. And even the people in the northern tribes start moving south. Now imagine that America becomes so great in our, in our faithfulness to God, that people start emigrating to us from Canada. Like we're not even worried about the southern border anymore, we're worried about the northern border because they keep coming down. That's what was going on here in Israel. The people from the, that northern kingdom started heading south and moving in there. And verse 10 says, they're all gathered in Jerusalem in the third month of the 15th year of Asa's reign. Now, the third month on the Jewish calendar, Jewish calendar is a little different than the one that we use, is late May or early June in our calendar. So in other words, they've come together to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. Leviticus 23 tells us that on Pentecost, the nation was to sacrifice a bull, seven lambs, and two rams. That was the prescribed sacrifice during that time. But verse 11 says that at that time they sacrificed to the Lord 700 cattle, 7,000 sheep and goats from all the plunder that they had brought. They went above and beyond. Remember last week? David asked to build an altar to the Lord, but he did more than what he was asked. When Solomon was seeking God's favor, he sacrificed more than was expected. And when Asa and his people make a sacrifice, they do a thousand times more than they asked. And the takeaway is this. 
One of the measures of how much we love God is how much we're willing to give him. Not necessarily talking about money. You know, people, people look at the pastors and say, oh, you're always talking about money. I, I, I'm not talking necessarily about money. But I know the more you love someone, the more you'll give them lavishly. Right? No one wants to go give their fiancé the cheapest ring they got out of a gungball machine at Walmart. Right? We, we go in there, and we, we, if we're, if we're going to propose to someone, we, we get them the best ring we can possibly afford because we love them that much. It's very similar with God. That if we love him, we should be able to give to him lavishly. Just like these people. Verse 14, it says that they took an oath to the Lord in a loud voice, with shouting, with trumpets, and with ram's horns. All Judah rejoiced over the oath, for they had sworn it wholeheartedly. Their covenant that they made said this, For me and my house we will serve the Lord. We'll serve him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. They had such zeal for the Lord, it was just consuming their every thought and action during that time. So this wasn't a quiet, nice little church service. This was a revival. There was shouting, there was dancing, there were trumpets, ram's horns. They were making some noise. It was a huge revival. Everyone was all in from God. And the lesson of the revival is this. Seek the Lord and He will be found by you. We need revival today. Let me say that again. We need revival today. You know, somebody private messaged me this week and asked me, you know, how we could like start getting some of the representatives and senators and, 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 and out of office so that we could turn around and impeach the current president and, and do all these political things. And I said, you know what? I am honestly praying that Joe Biden comes into a deep relationship with Jesus Christ. I am praying that Kamala Harris comes into a deep saving faith in Jesus Christ. And that through that, their actions will reflect their new faith. I'm not judging. I don't know if they're believers or not. I can only judge by actions. But their actions, I would say no, but... Again, that's, that's, that's a slippery slope. I don't want to go too far down that trail. My concern is that they come to Jesus. And through such a radical salvation, it leads to a spark of revival in America. Listen, we've tried the politics, haven't we? We've tried politics. At least for 20 years, the church has been involved in politics. Where has it gotten us? Here we are. It's not working. It's not the way God intended it. What we need is a revival in our church. We need revival. And I hope you're praying for that these days. Because, you know, we've trusted in the man. We've trusted in the political party. Trusted in all that to try to keep our lives comfortable and to save us. But what we need is an honest revival of repentance to save this great land. I love America with all my heart. But the only way to save it is to humble ourselves and pray and seek his face and turn from our wicked ways so that he then can turn and heal our land. 
That's why so many people are shaky right now. That's why so many people have anxiety right now. That's why so many people are stuck on their, their phones or their TVs looking to, to find the latest news or, 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 hope, or hope through a whole bunch of conspiracy theories and all that. But you know what? God is shaking us right now. And that's a good thing. You know, the one thing about the devil, the devil can do a lot of counterfeiting. The devil can do a lot of things to try to make us happy. But the devil, in essence, has no building code. He doesn't earthquake-proof anything. So when God wants to knock stuff devil down, he does some shaking. In fact, Hebrews says that. He was speaking of, about Israel at Mount Sinai. In Hebrews 12.26, it said, At that time God's voice shook the earth, but now he was promised, Once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of things that can be shaken. That is, created things. So that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. That's the kind of fire we need of revival in America right now. We need God to shake us down to our core so all that created stuff, all that those schemes of the devil will fall down at our feet so the only thing left standing is the church. So Asa assembles the people for Pentecost and it's so powerful. Again, people come from outside the nation. And that's, that's my prayer, that, that the world would see America again as the beacon and lighthouse of Christianity. So how do we apply this to us? I've already been saying it. Pray for revival. Pray for revival in our own lives first. That God shakes away those things that, that are keeping us from a, a closer, more intimate um, relationship with Him. Pray for revival in our family for the same thing, that, that God removes things that are keeping us from more wholeheartedly serving him and representing him as family. Then start praying for your neighborhood. Start praying for your city. Start praying for your state. Start praying for your political leaders, that God can start shaking things. So all of that stuff that we've been trusting in will fall to the ground. And people will have nowhere else to look but the God who loves them. It has to start somewhere. Every single revival that has ever happened in history, I used to read about them all the time. It's always started with one person who just decided, I need more of God. And it spread. Ezra has one more lesson for us this morning. 14's been, chapter 14 has been about the route. Chapter 15 has been about the revival. Chapter 16 is about the rebuke. Even though Asa was, was really fervent for God in chapter 15, him, like many of us, allowed his temperature to cool down a little bit. 25 years after the revival, the northern kingdom gets a new king, a guy named Basha. Begins to threaten the southern kingdom, says, I'm going to come and invade you. He gets a little angry because all the people in the north want to come to the south, so he puts up roadblocks so they can't get to the south because he's losing all these people. Chapter 16, verse 1 said, In the 36th year of Asa, kings, Israel's king Basha went to war against Judah. He built Ramah in order to keep anyone from leaving 
or coming to King Asa of Judah. So you remember a few years earlier when the Cushites came against Judah, Asa returned to God and prayed for his help. This time he doesn't. Instead, in 2 Chronicles 16, verses 1 through 3, he said, So Asa brought out the silver and the gold from the treasury of the Lord's temple and the royal palace and sent it to Aram's king Ben-Hadad, who lived in Damascus, saying, There's a treaty between me and you, between my father and your father. Look, I've sent you silver or gold. Now break your treaty with Israel's king Basha so that he will withdraw from me. In other words, he's talking about Syria. Syria is to the north of Israel. He wants this king to attack him from the north. So um, the king of Israel has to take his troops away from the southern border and go fight on the north. He's just paying somebody else to do his fighting for him, is what he's doing. Sometimes we get there ourselves. We, get, we go from being filled with zeal for God, but now we get lulled by leisure. Instead of trusting God and leading his people into battle, he pays somebody else to do the fighting for him. And it did work. Basha withdraws his forces. But God was not pleased. He sent another prophet to King Asa. And this prophet says, Were not the Cushites and Libyans a vast army with many chariots and horsemen? When you depended on the Lord and he handed them over to you? And then he says, Asa, do you not know that the eyes of the Lord roam through the, throughout the earth to show himself strong for those who are wholeheartedly devoted to him? You've been very foolish in this matter. Therefore, you will have wars from now on. You know, God is looking for devoted followers. People who have finally had enough of this world and its systems, and they know that they need God to move. He's looking for us. His eyes are searching us right now looking for those who will follow him with that kind of zeal. And if he finds you, he's going to fortify you. He's going to add strength to you. He's going to do great things for you. And that's the lesson of the rebuke. Commit to the Lord, and he will fortify you. He'll make you strong and show himself strong on your behalf. You see this throughout the Bible. Joseph saw this when he went from the, the pit to the prison to Potiphar's to the palace. He remained faithful to God. Took him from death into the, the best life he could have at that time. Moses saw this when his back was against the Red Sea. Daniel saw this when he closed the mouths of lions so he could live. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego saw it when they saw the fourth man in the fire. Peter saw this when the angel opened a prison door before him Paul and Silas saw it when they, when, the, when they started singing praise to God after, being, after having all the skin flogged off their back. They still sing praise to God. God decided to join in with some bass and the prison fell apart. I mean, God is faithful in these, in these instances. We need to just get to the point where we say without reservation, all I have with, is yours, God, and all I am is yours. 
So just a couple of questions before we wrap up today. How's our heart today? How's your heart today? Would you say it's fully on fire for God? Are you starting your day and praying through the day, asking for God's leadership in your life? Are you praying for God's power to help further His kingdom? If God asks you for a, a bull and a ram and sheep, are you giving Him several hundred or seven thousand of them because you trust Him that much? Let's all rise.